Inclusion Inc. Diversity at Work is a podcast about exploring the hard topics and questions within the conversation about diversity and inclusion. Throughout this series, I sit down with business leaders and influencers from startups to Fortune 500 companies to dive deeper into the exciting but sometimes uncomfortable conversations and changes happening within the workplace. Tune in to some real conversation with real people about real issues. This is Inclusion Inc. Diversity at Work. March 3rd, 107 years ago on Pennsylvania Avenue, just one day before Woodrow Wilson's inauguration, stood 20 parade floats, nine bands, and Inez Mulholland. Inez was a short, sharp Brooklynite who now sat atop a white horse leading the first ever women's rights event in the United States. She was raised by a reporter father for the New York Tribune who openly supported civil rights and women's suffrage. Her mother, an avid proponent for education, pushed her sister Vita, brother Jack, and Inez to prize learning and hard work. The tutelage and passion of her parents pushed this young woman to apply for law school despite getting rejected by Yale, Harvard, and Cambridge. All on account of her gender. Later, young Inez was matriculated into New York law by pure willpower and intelligence. But on March 3, 1913, Inez was leading a new charge. She was charging for equality. Dressed in a crown, a long white cape, and riding a white horse, Inez led hundreds of women through the streets of the American capital. In 1913, a march of this nature was unheard of. In fact, it had never happened before. In the land of opportunity, Inez Mulholland, at just 26 years old, spearheaded the very first women's march. For 60 years, women had been fighting for rights on U.S. soil, but it wasn't until today that the masses moved in unison and took the streets with purpose, led by a young woman from Brooklyn. A purpose which that day sent over 100 women to the hospital because they marched for change. Three years later, Inez passed away unexpectedly while giving a speech at the Good Samaritan Hospital in Los Angeles for the National Woman's Party. Her last words were, Mr. President, how long must women wait for liberty? Three years later, the 19th Amendment to the Constitution was ratified. Darren Hill, thank you for being here with us. I'm so excited to you, Bree. This is a real pleasure. It's fun to be here, and I love the podcast. Good, good. I'm so glad. Thank you. Um, I want to kick things off at the very beginning. Talk to us about your life, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you got to be the person you are today. Yeah, happy to do that, Bree. Uh, one of the things that uh, just instantly comes to my mind when you shared that um, is you know, growing up as a Missouri farm boy. Um, I had a great experience, wonderful parents, and uh, a great opportunity to learn and grow in an environment that was, I think, what they call free-range parenting today, where my parents just gave us lots of room to roam and a farm and animals and responsibility and um, some great educational experiences. I grew up in Missouri on, uh, in a setting that most people would today, would today um, consider to be in the heartland and also not well-to-do. Uh, so... You know, my parents worked very hard to provide a great life for us, and we did have a great life and a wonderful upbringing, but there was, there was always enough, but never too much. And uh, I'm super grateful for that. Taught me a lot of good things. Um, my, my mom was a full-time mom and uh, spent her time trying to help teach us 
uh, character and uh, the kinds of things that make people good. And then my dad was also really good at that, but also, um, you know, provided full time for us and uh, worked in financial services and insurance. And I had five incredible brothers and sisters. So the six of us as, as siblings were a, a total troop. We were best friends. Uh, you know, when you live a mile away from the nearest kid, you get to be really good friends with your brothers and sisters. That was Darren Hill, serial entrepreneur who has founded and co-founded 10 companies with eight of them being successful. He is now the founder and CEO of Rev Road. So if it was you starting from ground zero, building a house of diversity and inclusion, what would you use as your foundation? Mm. First of all, I love that you use a great visual for that. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, I, I do think that diversity and inclusion is a strong foundation to build on. One of the things that I've noticed is I've worked all across the United States in dozens of countries around the world and with people of every race, color, religion, gender, um, that there is beauty in that diversity. And frankly, there's strength. There's power in that diversity. And I'll share some examples of that, but let me hit your question first on the foundation. Sure. So I would build it on a foundation of diversity and inclusion that helps everyone understand that if you're a part of this organization, we're all brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. Like we're literally brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter um, the color of your skin. It doesn't matter, you know, if you, you wear a skirt and high heels or if you wear pants or if you are uh, a native of the country or an immigrant or if you um, happen to have a different set of beliefs than someone else or different politics. Mm -hmm. Like I think diversity and inclusion goes so far beyond just the legal definitions Absolutely. that are protected. I think it also includes um, diversity uh, of thought. It includes diversity of experience. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to have people who have just the biggest, broadest span of each one of those things possible because then there's richness that comes from that. In one of our companies, uh, Imagine Learning, we, we struggled to hire programmers who were women. And, uh, and in fact, our entire uh, dev team uh, for the first few years were all men. And they did a great job. They're awesome people. They did wonderful work. But as soon as we focused, like really proactively focused on recruiting women into that role, like it wasn't an accident, but we really intentionally did that, that we started seeing incredible improvements in our product because there is a different way of thinking. There was a broader set of ideas and possibilities that were brought to the meetings right. that just weren't brought up before because there was so much sameness, you know? And, and adding that differentness made a huge difference to the way that people looked at the design of an activity or, or the way uh, the reporting came across or um, how the user experience felt. And so lots of different ways, but that would be the foundation is to say, look, the foundation is it's purposeful, making sure that it actually happens uh, and that it's planned. Um, secondly, making sure that everyone has a, a common understanding that all of us are brothers and sisters. And so as we do that, you kind of stop thinking about the things that divide you and you start thinking about the things that you can do together. Yeah, and the things that unite you as well. Um, and I, I think you touched on a really important piece of adding women to the table and in your case the development team right yeah. um, and it brought a new 
perspective and new voices and new ideas to the table, which I think really speaks to the importance of representation. Yes. Um, not only being rep like represented in the room, but also representing a group of people for those watching, right? Can you speak to the importance of representation and how you've seen it impact businesses nationally and internationally? Because I know you have experience with both. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so representation is important not only for those, like it's not only important for in the company, mm -hmm. but it's important for everyone else who has any touch point there. It's important for their customers. Mm -hmm. It's important for their shareholders. Frankly, it's important for just their kids or any general person who's looking in from the outside. Um, uh, you know, coming from a, a minority religion uh, in a state that uh, I grew up in a state where it was actually illegal to uh, uh, to kill someone of my faith uh, until I think 1976. Um, I had a little bit of experience, just a, a little bit of a prism through which to look at what it meant to uh, to be an other, you know, to not be included with the main group. And in no way does my experience compare or contrast or compare in any way to some of the bigger challenges that other people face. But it was definitely um, enough for me to have sensitivity to that. And so. You know, when I when I think about that representation, I think about my daughters. You know, when my daughters see a Congress at the State of the Union, and I still remember one of them sitting there watching it with us and saying, why does everyone dress in black, except for just a few that have colorful outfits? I said, well, actually, those are women. And there are very few. <laughs> and, uh, not long after that, um, that same daughter said, you know, I think I'd like to go serve in Congress at some point. And so I'd have an opportunity to help increase the number of women that are there. Um, and since then, she's had an opportunity to, you know, interface with and get to know some of the congressional people that represent our, our area. And it's been wonderful to see the effect that it has as she meets with his chief of staff, who happens to be female. Yeah, and she sees that. And then furthermore, I, I think about another example. Um, there's a great uh, uh, executive who, um, uh, at the time she was hired into our company, she was hired as a $10 an hour temp, okay? And, and then became a clerk, um, I think at 12 bucks an hour. And she was in a different department. And I just, I remember watching her work and it was always outstanding, like super impressive. And uh, I, I asked my partner, who was her manager at the time, you know, are you going to promote her? And he said, no, she's, she's been a mom her whole life. She doesn't have the kind of work experience that, that I would promote her with. And so I asked him if I could hire her into my department. And he said, sure. So uh, I put her in charge of events. And um, uh, instantly, that entire department just elevated, lifted, grew, became better. And uh, she was just stellar. And so uh, literally within six months, promoted her to also then take on uh, sales operations. And again, same pattern, just dynamic improvements, uh, very impressive change. Her team was so, so excited to work with her and she delivered, she delivered incredible results. Um, I was then able to uh, work with my other partners to help her join the executive team as the first non-founder uh, female executive. And she is, uh, I think, one of the main reasons why our company was so successful. 
And I think back to just what what had to happen there to make sure she had that opportunity. You know, uh, I, I, I believe that we should be, you know, as, as a man, I should be a man ambassador for women. Mm-hmm. You know, we should help make sure that all people have an opportunity to serve, to grow, to excel, to lead, mm-hmm. and without limit, you know, all the way to any role that they want to achieve. Um, but there are some real barriers with that. Uh, you know, it took me three years to get her to pay parity because uh, there were just challenges with that. Let's just put it that way. Um, but we finally did. And in fact, um, uh, she recently retired from that company. And when she retired, she was chief of staff, Incredible. number two only to the CEO. And uh, many, many of the women who work in that company had the opportunity to look up to her. Mm-hmm. And she mentored many of the women in the company to help them and many of the men in the company, frankly. And so um, I think that kind of representation is crucial. You know, it's just like when we had President Obama become the first first African-American president. Um, I remember being with several of my African-American friends when that was announced and just the, the pure, undeniable joy of seeing I could be that person. Mm-hmm. You know, I could grow into that role. Someone else has done it, so so can I. Right. Inspires generations. It does. It's really inspiring to be able to see someone who looks like you or has a similar past or similar experiences go somewhere you never thought you could go or reach heights you never thought you could reach. It really is a really important piece of development, personally, professionally, in all aspects. It is. Um, this last year has slammed us with so many changes and emotions and things all across the board. Um, And I know companies are feeling, companies and organizations are feeling um, a lot of pressure to include Mm D&I into their company policies Mm -hmm. and practices. However, they're also dealing with and trying to manage all of these other changes that they've experienced due to the economy or whatever else, right? What advice would you give to other company leaders on where to begin? Yeah, good. Uh, So I'll say three things on where to start. So the first thing is just start. (laughs) <laughs> okay, because when it is complex, when it is everywhere and where it's somewhat overwhelming, most people just go into paralysis and they just hope someone else does it. Right. And so that's probably the most important one is start, do something. Okay. Mm-hmm. And even if it's imperfect, even if it's awkward or clumsy, even if it uh, doesn't turn out the way you want it to, just start. Um, because if you start now and you start today and then you start again tomorrow and then you start again next week and next month in promoting diversity and inclusion, you'll succeed mm-hmm. and you'll succeed a lot. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, the, the, the second thing with diversity and inclusion is to realize we don't need to boil the ocean to use that phrase. Um, uh, let's start with what is close to us. You know, the opportunities that are right here, right now. Is there someone of color that you know that is in your neighborhood? Are they included? Mm-hmm. Do they get the invite to the company or to the, the community barbecue? Do they come? Do they feel welcome? Right. You know, uh, uh, do, do you have someone at work who perhaps comes from uh, a category that someone would consider to be other? You know, whether it be sexual preference or gender or color, whatever it happens to be, uh, or educational status, Mm -hmm. do you reach out to them? Do they feel a part because of what you do? 
Um, I I think about uh, Eduardo uh, in in one of the companies uh, that I was able to help co-found in the past. Uh, We had a janitor named Eduardo, great guy. He was actually in his 70s and he just wanted to keep working. And so he applied to to be the custodian of our building. Um, When we hired him, we not only hired him and gave him a great job and really great pay, but, uh, and treated him with respect, but instead of having a CEO's reserved parking spot, we had a parking spot reserved for Eduardo. I love that. And I, that's what I think of when I think of where are those boxes stacked yeah. for people to, to stand on. You know, each of us have the ability to do things like that. It was a simple thing, it was a small thing, but it made him feel completely included, and he was. So, so look around. Um, is there someone, you know, like that $10 an hour clerk who you can do something mm-hmm. for or where you can just open an opportunity? I didn't I didn't do the work. She did it. I mean, she right. was stellar. Right. I didn't have to do anything other than make sure there was an opportunity. Right. And so I think that's really, really crucial. And then, and then lastly uh, is don't be shy. True social change happens when it catches fire. You know, uh, you, you look at any of the times of social injustice and, you know, they're all throughout history, whether it be religious minorities or uh, racial minorities or women or whatever. It never was solved by just one person, mm-hmm. but it took each person doing their thing and then telling others how powerful that was and how important it was and how they should come along and try that. Right. You know? I was recently at the Library of Congress, and uh, they just finished a, an incredible exhibition uh, for the celebration of the 100-year centennial of uh, women gaining the right to vote in America, in, in the United States. And I've been back to it three times now since then, and taken my daughters and mm. and uh, made sure that they understood that you know. The freedom that they enjoy today came from a variety of literally thousands of outstanding leaders and women who were just normal everyday people. And then uh, in some cases, also men who were outstanding, who were supportive and helpful. They were ambassadors for women's rights. And then those people brought along everyone else who were the majority who weren't otherwise going to change a dang thing, you know? And so those, that's what I would say is, is first do something, start. Secondly, do something in your sphere of influence. Don't feel like you have to go out and change the world because if you change your area, you are changing the world and you're changing someone's world. And then thirdly, get other people involved. Reach out, speak, talk, march, participate. Participate. I find that there are... Um, there are those who feel the need to tiptoe around yeah. these kind of conversations, yes. right? And and I understand because a lot of times conversations like these, there are heavy emotions attached to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are those who would like to avoid, I guess, the discomfort of the conversation. Yes. Why uh, was that a good decision? Why was that the move Revro decided to make? Well, it was super simple because this is part of our DNA. It's part of that foundation that you described. Uh, anyone who has looked at our team or who has looked at our companies can see that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you look at the pool of, of, of uh, talent that we draw from in our local area here, and our, our rate of diversity and inclusion is vastly improved over that. Yeah. 
And that's a purposeful choice. And it's something that we constantly work at, talk about, value, and execute on. And so uh, when, you, when we had the opportunity to do this, and especially since you were in, involved pre-Ray, who you. we just love <laughs> and admire so much, it was an easy choice. Um, and frankly, we believe. We're believers. Uh, and not just in word, but in deed. What we do, uh, like we walk the walk. We're not perfect at it. I, I, I will say that. Like we're still trying. Uh, and sometimes we don't get it quite right. Uh, sometimes we have to nuance and nudge and, you know, hear feedback and get better. Totally open to that. But definitely also know that we're way above the average there and that we can be a force for good. We're a multiplier. Yeah. Like we can multiply that perspective, not just here, but in all of our portfolio companies, through all the public events that we do and all the different people that we touch and inter interact with uh, in the course of our work, whether it be through universities or through Silicon Slopes or through any of the other kinds of uh, outreach that we do. In, in fact, next month, uh, uh, every month, I should say, we have Rev Road University on the first Thursday of the month at 11 a.m. And it's a public uh, event that is free for anyone to attend. And it's it's one of those things we do to lift all the boats. Right. You know, no, they don't ha no one has to be a part of a, a portfolio company to come and participate in that. And we bring in outstanding speakers and you host that. I do. And you host it so well. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, and you interview outstanding individuals and, and teams of people who have started great companies and done incredible things. Mm -hmm. And you pull out of that conversation really fantastic principles for success. Um, uh, we're, we're quite pur purposeful for that. So all of last year, um, we highlighted uh, an incredible woman from history, uh, recent or, or, or far past. Uh, who was an incredible leader who helped contribute to uh, women getting the vote mm -hmm. or to some other aspect of women's leadership. Um, next month, we'll be uh, welcoming an incredible uh, panel mm -hmm. of people to come and talk about diversity and inclusion and their experience with it and to celebrate Black History Month. So there are so many things that we can do as entrepreneurs, as business owners, as leaders, as team members no matter what our role is, yeah. we can all do that, and even in a startup. All humans deserve respect and dignity, and referencing and referring to people with their preferred and correct term, name, pronoun, whatever it may be, is a way to show that respect and that dignity. So how can we become more fluent in the language of diversity and inclusion? Christina Sharif is the head of diversity, inclusion, and belonging at Reddit, the front page of the internet. Do you know what's so interesting that I just thought about that just sort of hit me? When it's your native language, people assume fluency. And if there's a nuance, like you're making somebody feel uncomfortable, it's mm -hmm. a gap in EQ, it's a gap in your communication skills, but not a gap in fluency. If perhaps you have maybe equal to, or maybe slightly less, technical skill in another language, people always assume a gap in fluency versus a gap in those other areas. If we equate that to racism in the U.S., uh, when it comes to promotions, when it comes to job development, when it comes to all of those things, right, folks will assume and give white people more opportunities because they will assume um, that white people have basic skills 
right? And will move them forward in processes compared to a black person that perhaps with the same skills and skill gaps and will assume that those that black people or people of color cannot fill those gaps mm-hmm. at the same rate for some reason and and i was having an interesting conversation with somebody the other day when we were talking about promotion rates among people mm-hmm. of color just uh, amongst like large data points and how white people get promoted at um, usually faster rates um, with the same gaps as people of color have. And it's interesting because, and even like during uh, various recruiting processes um, amongst large organizations, if you take resumes, people are more willing to take risks with white people that don't have all of the skills versus people of color that don't have all the skills. They require damn near perfection for people of color that do not have those skills. And people with white sounding names also get hired more. Oh yeah, 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 that's a, that's a well-known fact. And it leaves me to the same thing, like in your native language, in America, and that's just, and for me that even backs up the point further that in America, white is considered fluent. Will you dive into the difference between I'm not racist and I'm anti-racist? Sure. I know many people, for example, that are fluent in English and still don't make me feel comfortable the way that they uh, <laughs> the way that they right. deliver their message, right? So I do think that there is also a difference between being fluent in something and mm-hmm. still being on the journey and yeah. still knowing, you know, how to address your audience. Uh, there's a certain EQ factor that's really important, I think, you know, that that's outside of being fluent, but that that's that's um that's important and when we're talking about um, perfecting communication skills that being said in the world of uh fluency and diversity and inclusion and the difference between being um anti-racist and feeling like i'm not being anti-racist is sort of taking intentional actions um, to tear down the systemic injustices that have afflicted underrepresented minorities and um, marginalized individuals uh, up until this point, right? So it's different from saying, um, you know, I, I don't feel that lesbians don't deserve to be married. It's the difference between that and making sure that your legislators hear your voice, uh, making sure that you're involved in whatever way that you can be within your community um, to make sure that those laws get changed. Um, And obviously that's not race right now, we're talking about something different, but um, I'm trying to equate it to maybe another struggle so that folks can understand the equivalent. Uh, And then when we're talking about racism specifically, it's, it's, um, you know, it's not, I, I don't feel like black people, you know, I feel black people should have all of the rights, right? Black people, uh, the difference between that and like what systemic things have gotten us to where we are right now and working specifically against those things, speaking up. Um, if you see something, say something versus just feeling like it shouldn't be that way. Um, so that's the difference between like tearing down the building versus just, you know, f- feeling uh, guilty, ashamed, and sad that the building is there. So how do we really invest in people? Yeah, I think about it in, in three big buckets. And in my mind, 
A DNI strategy can be created out of these three big buckets. The three okay. big buckets are hire, mentor, promote. There are systems and processes under these three big buckets that companies can develop and execute, right? So under the hire bucket, the system and process that needs to be executed under this is recruiting, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to make sure that we have inclusive recruiting processes. There's a mm -hmm. lo long laundry list of things that we can do to make sure that we have diverse slates of candidates, to make sure that we have um, diverse um, panels for our interviews, to make sure that we're tracking data in terms of um, what applicant, who's applying, how far along they're getting in the process, et cetera, right? So there's a, a laundry list of things to ensure both diversity inclusion within that process, but the first big bucket is higher. The second big bucket is mentor. So once folks are in the door, under that mentoring bucket, I consider things like learning and development. So what opportunities are we giving to people, uh, not only under, um, sort of like one-to-one -one mentorship, right? So like finding a leader to, you know, mentor them throughout their career, but also really in terms of like, who are we giving opportunities to, to take on large projects? Who are we giving opportunities to, to take on projects that are gonna get um, a lot of visibility, right? Um, who are we giving uh, opportunities to, to partake in maybe external development um, opportunities? Are we looking at external partners, for instance, like McKinsey Leadership Institute to help with black employees and um, bringing their management skills up to the next level? Uh, I think about things like that under that mentorship bucket. So there's, again, tens of processes and systems that we can implement under that mentorship bucket. Um, to make sure, but that's the second big bucket. The third big bucket is promote. And so every system that has to do with promotion, and when I think about promotion, I think about two things. The first thing is obviously like an actual job promotion going up to the next step. But the second thing is promoting people as in talking about them in rooms that they're not in, right? How do I, how do I promote you, right? How do I, how do I talk great about you, right? So I think about those two things. And so under that promotion bucket, when we think about moving somebody up to the next level, some of those things that we think about compensation, am I proactively looking across my organization to make sure that there's equitable pay, right? Am I doing pay parity audits to make sure that uh, underrepresented minorities in my organization are, are being paid equitably compared to, for instance, white males doing the same position within my organization? Um, in addition to that, looking at my promotion rates, right? And, our underrepresented minorities getting promoted at um, fair rates compared to majority employees within my organization. Um, uh, am I, if I'm looking at um, performance metrics, right? Um, are um, am I am I, are my managers assessing my underrepresented minority employees the same mm -hmm. way? And am as HR, am I creating or helping managers create guidelines to make sure that there's not bias within these processes, right? Mm -hmm. And so those are the things that I think about under actual like moving up to the next level. But one of the most powerful tools in um, the other part of promotion is called sponsorship, which is I'm talking about people in rooms that they're not in. So I'm saying like, hey, did you see what Jackie did? Did you, did you hear about the project that in random rooms full of people that I know will have influence?
which is so powerful, right? So I'm not just looking out for myself. I'm looking out for other people. And I'm not making stuff up, right? I, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm actually talking about things that I'm impressed by, but I'm making sure that other people's work is uh, seen, heard, and uh, acknowledged and hopefully valued as well. So those are the three buckets that I think about. And again, there's we can go on forever about the systems and processes that we can include under those three buckets and make sure that those systems and processes are inclusive. Um, but I think that if we think about things in terms of those three things, we can build an entire strategy. Inez Mulholland never saw the fruits of her labors. Passing away at the tender age of 30, she never saw a woman pass a ballot, vote in Congress, become a Supreme Court judge, or Vice President of the United States. But even without proof for hope, Inez fought for what she believed in. Guided by her parents and mentors, she made a difference that has lasted well over a century and expanded past borders and social divides. The value and the power of education and perseverance created her legacy as a forerunner of diversity and inclusion. On May 7, 1911, she held a sign that read, Forward, Out of Error, Leave behind the night, forward through the darkness, forward into the light. Let us move forward. At this time, we'd like to take a moment to thank our podcast sponsor, Rev Road. They are a venture services firm located just south of Silicon Slopes in Utah. Their applications are open every quarter for new companies. So if you are a bright entrepreneur out there, go ahead and apply at RevRoad.com. This podcast is proudly brought to you by LaunchPod Media, podcast agency and production house.